Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob. I'm reading today from a sermon entitled The Heart of the Gospel. It was preached by Charles Spurgeon on July 18, 1886 at the Metropolitan Tabernacle at Newington in England. You can access this uh, little pamphlet that I'm reading from by contacting the Chapel Library. That's chapel at mountzion.org. Chapel at mountzion.org. He reads first from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Second Corinthians 5, verses 20 and 21. Now, the heart of the gospel is redemption. And the essence of redemption is the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. They who preach this truth preach the gospel in whatever else they may be mistaken. But they who preach not the atonement, whatever else they declare, have missed the soul and substance of the divine message. In these days, I feel bound to go over and over again the elementary truths of the gospel. In peaceful times, we may feel free to make excursions into interesting districts of truth which lie far afield. But now, we must stay at home and guard the hearths and homes of the church by defending the first principles of the faith. In this age, there have risen up in the church, in the church itself, men who speak perverse things. There be many that trouble us with their philosophies and novel interpretations, whereby they deny the doctrines that they profess to teach and undermine the faith that they are pledged to maintain. It is well that some of us who know what we believe and have no secret meanings for our words should just put our foot down and maintain our standing holding forth the word of life and plainly declaring the foundation truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me give you a parable. In the days of Nero, there was great shortness of food in the city of Rome, although there was abundance of corn to be purchased at Alexandria. A certain man who owned a vessel went down to the seacoast, and there he noticed many hungry people straining their eyes toward the sea, watching for the vessels that were to come from Egypt with corn. When these vessels came to the shore one by one, the poor people wrung their hands in bitter disappointment, for on board the galleys there was nothing but sand, which the tyrant emperor had compelled them to bring for use in the arena. It was infamous cruelty when men were dying of hunger, to command trading vessels to go to and fro and bring nothing else but sand for gladiatorial shows, when wheat was so greatly needed. Then the merchant whose vessel was moored by the quay said to his shipmaster, Take thou good heed that thou bring nothing back with thee from Alexandria but corn. And whereas aforetime thou hast brought in the vessel a measure or two of sand, Bring thou not so much as would lie upon a penny this time. Bring thou nothing else, I say, but wheat, for these people are dying. And now we must 
keep our vessels for this one business of bringing food for them. Alas, I have I have seen certain mighty galleys of late loaded with nothing but mere sand of philosophy and speculation. And I've said within myself, Nay, but I will bear nothing in my ship but the revealed truth of God, the bread of life so greatly needed by the people. God grant us this day that our ship may have nothing on board it that may merely gratify the curiosity or please the taste, but that there may be necessary truths for the salvation of souls. I would have each one of you say, Well, it was just the old, old story of Jesus and his love and nothing else. I have no desire to be famous for anything but preaching the old gospel. There are plenty who can fiddle to you the new music. It's for me to have no music at any time but that which is heard in heaven unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. To him be glory for ever and ever. I intend, dear friends, to begin my discourse with the second part of my text, in which the doctrine of substitution is set forth in these words, He hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This is the basis and power of those appeals which it is our duty to make to the consciences of men. I have found my brethren, by long experience, that nothing touches the heart like the cross of Christ. And when the heart is touched and wounded by the two-edged sword of the law, nothing heals its wounds like the balm which flows from the pierced heart of Jesus. The cross is life to the spiritually dead. There is an old legend which can have no literal truth in it, but if it be regarded as a parable, it is then most instructive. They say that when the Empress Helena was searching for the true cross, they digged deep at Jerusalem and found the three crosses of Calvary buried in the soil. Which out of the three crosses was the veritable cross upon which Jesus died, they could not tell, except by certain tests. And so they brought a corpse and laid it on one of the crosses, but there was neither life nor motion. When the same dead body touched another of the crosses, it lived. And then they said, This is the true cross. When we see men quickened, converted, and sanctified by the doctrine of the substitutionary sacrifice, we may justly conclude that it is the true doctrine of atonement. I have not known men made to live unto God in holiness except by the doctrine of the death of Christ on man's behalf. Hearts of stone that never beat with life before have been turned to flesh through the Holy Spirit causing them to know this truth. A sacred tenderness has visited the obstinate when they have heard of Jesus crucified for them, those who have lain at hell's dark door, wrapped about with a sevenfold death shade, even upon them hath a great light shined. The story of the great lover of the souls of men who gave himself for their salvation is still in the hand of the Holy Ghost, the greatest of all forces in the realm of mind. And so this morning I'm going to handle first the the great doctrine, and then afterwards, and secondly, 
as God shall help me, we shall come to the, the great argument, which is contained in the 20th verse. Now, when we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. So first, the great doctrine. With as much brevity as possible, I'll speak upon that great doctrine, the great doctrine, the, the greatest of all. It is this, that God, seeing men to be lost by reason of their sin, hath taken that sin of theirs and laid it upon his only begotten Son, making him to be sin for us, even him who knew no sin. And that, in consequence of this transference of sin, he that believeth in Christ Jesus is made just and righteous, yea, is made to be the righteousness of God in Christ. Christ was made sin that sinners might be made righteousness. That is the doctrine of the substitution of our Lord Jesus Christ on the behalf of guilty men. Now consider first, who was made sin for us? The description of our great surety here given is upon one point only, and it may more than suffice us for our present meditation. Our substitute was spotless, innocent, and pure. He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Christ Jesus, the Son of God, became incarnate and was made flesh and dwelt here among men. But though he was made in the likeness of sinful flesh, he knew no sin. Though upon him sin was laid, yet not so as to make him guilty, he was not, he could not be a sinner. He had no personal knowledge of sin. Throughout the whole of his life, he never committed an offense against the great law of truth and right. The law was in his heart. It was his nature to be holy. He could say to all the world, Which of you convinceth me of sin? Even this vacillating judge inquired why, What evil hath he done? When all Jerusalem was challenged and bribed to bear witness against him, no witnesses could be found. It was necessary to misquote and rest his words before a charge could be trumped up against him by his bitterest enemies. His life brought him in contact with both the tables of the law, but no single command had he transgressed. As the Jews examined the paschal lamb before they slew it, so did scribes and Pharisees and doctors of the law, rulers and princes, examine the Lord Jesus without finding offense in him. He was the Lamb of God, without blemish and without spot. As there was no sin of commission, so there was about our Lord no fault of omission. Probably, dear brethren, we that are believers have been enabled by divine grace to escape most sins of commission, but I, for one, have to mourn daily over sins of omission. If we have spiritual graces, yet they do not reach the point required of us, if we do that which is right in itself, yet we usually mar our work upon the wheel, either in the motive or in the manner of doing it, or by the self-satisfaction with which we view it when it is done, we come short of the glory of God in some respect or other, 
We forget to do what we ought to do, or doing it, we are guilty of lukewarmness, self-reliance, unbelief, or some other grievous error. It was not so with our divine Redeemer. You cannot say that there was any feature deficient in his perfect beauty. He was complete in heart, in purpose, in thought, in word, in deed, in spirit. You could not add anything to the life of Christ without its being manifestly an excrescence, that is, an abnormal or disfiguring outgrowth. He was emphatically an all-around man, as we say in these days. His life is a perfect circle, a complete epitome of virtue. No pearl has dropped from the silver string of his character. No one virtue has overshadowed and dwarfed the rest. All perfections combine in perfect harmony to make in him one surpassing perfection. Neither did our Lord know a sin of thought. His mind never produced any evil wish or desire. There never was in the heart of our blessed Lord a wish for an evil pleasure, nor a desire to escape any suffering or shame which was involved in his service. When he said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, he never desired to escape the bitter potion at the expense of his perfect life work. The if it be possible meant if it be consistent with full obedience to the Father and the accomplishment of the divine purpose. We see the weakness of his nature shrinking and the holiness of his nature resolving and conquering as he adds, nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. He took upon him the likeness of sinful flesh, but though that flesh often caused him weariness of body, it never produced in him the weakness of sin. He took our infirmities, but he never exhibited an infirmity which had the least of blameworthiness attached to it. Never fell there an evil glance from those blessed eyes. Never did his lips let drop a hasty word. Never did those feet go on an ill errand, nor those hands move towards a sinful deed, because his heart was filled with holiness and love. Within as well as without, our Lord was unblemished. His desires were as perfect as his actions. Searched by the eyes of omniscience, no shadow of fault could be found in him. Yea, more, there were no tendencies about our substitute towards evil in any form. In us there are always those tendencies, for the taint of original sin is upon us. We have to govern ourselves and hold ourselves under stern restraint, or we should rush headlong to destruction. Our carnal nature lusteth to evil and needs to be held in as with bit and bridle. Happy is that man who can master himself. But with regard to our Lord, it was his nature to be pure and right and loving. All his sweet wills were towards goodness. His unconstrained life was holiness itself. He was the holy child Jesus. The prince of this world found in him no fuel for the flame which he desired to kindle. Not only did no sin flow from him, but there was no sin in him, 
nor inclination, nor tendency in that direction. Watch him in secret, and you find him in prayer. Look unto his soul, and you find him eager to do and suffer the Father's will. Oh, the blessed character of Christ. If I had the tongues of men and of angels, I could not worthily set forth his absolute perfection. Justly may the Father be well pleased with him. Well may heaven adore him. Beloved, it was absolutely necessary that anyone who should be able to suffer in our stead should himself be spotless. A sinner, obnoxious to punishment by reason of his own offenses, what can he do but bear the wrath which is due to his own sin? Our Lord Jesus Christ, as man, was made under the law, but he owed nothing to that law, for he perfectly fulfilled it in all respects. He was capable of standing in the room, place, instead of others, because he was under no obligations of his own. He was only under obligations toward God because he had voluntarily undertaken to be the surety and sacrifice for those whom the Father gave him. He was clear himself, or else he could not have entered into bonds for guilty men. Oh, how I admire him, that being such as he was, spotless and thrice holy, so that even the heavens were not pure in his sight. And he charged his angels with folly, yet he condescended to be made sin for us. How could he endure to be numbered with the transgressors and bear the sin of many? It may be no misery for a sinful man to live with sinful men, but it would be a heavy sorrow for the pure-minded to dwell with a company of abandoned and licentious wretches. What an overwhelming sorrow it must have been to the pure and perfect Christ to tabernacle among the hypocritical, the selfish, the profane. How much worse that he himself should have to take upon himself the sins of those guilty men. His sensitive and delicate nature must have shrunk from even the shadow of sin. And yet, read the words and be astonished. It says he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Our perfect Lord and Master bear our sins in his own body on the tree. He before whom the sun itself is dim and the pure azure of heaven is defilement was made sin. I need not put this in fine words. The fact is itself too grand to need any magnifying by human language. To gild refined gold or paint the lily, that's absurd. But much more absurd would it be to try to overlay with, with flowers of speech the matchless beauties of the cross. It suffices in simple rhyme. And I quote to say, Oh, hear that piercing cry. What can its meaning be? My God, my God, oh, why hast thou in wrath forsaken me? Oh, t'was because our sins on him by God were laid. He who himself had never sinned, for sinners, sin was made. This leads me to the second point of the text, which is, 
what was done with him who knew no sin? Well, he was made sin. It's a wonderful expression. The more you weigh it, the more you will marvel at its singular strength. Only the Holy Ghost might originate such language. It was wise for the divine teacher to use very strong expressions, for else the, the thought might not have entered human minds. Even now, despite the emphasis, clearness, and distinctness of the language used here and elsewhere in Scripture, there are found men daring enough to deny that substitution is taught in Scripture. With such subtle wits, it is useless to argue. It is clear that language has no meaning for them. To read the 53rd chapter of Isaiah and to accept it as relating to the Messiah and then to deny his substitutionary sacrifice is simply wickedness. It would be vain to reason with such beings. They are so blind that if they were transported to the sun, they could not see. In the church and out of the church, there's a deadly animosity to this truth. Modern thought labors to get away from what is obviously the meaning of the Holy Spirit, that sin was lifted from the guilty and laid upon the innocent. It is written in Isaiah 53, 6, The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is as plain language as can be used. But if any plainer was required, here it is. He hath made him to be sin for us. In our text, the Lord God laid upon Jesus, who voluntarily undertook it, all the weight of human sin. Instead of its resting on the sinner, who did commit it, it was made to rest upon Christ, who did not commit it. While the righteousness which Jesus wrought out was placed to the account of the guilty, who had not worked it out, and so the guilty are treated as righteous. Those who by nature are guilty are regarded as righteous, while he who by nature knew no sin whatever was treated as guilty. I think I must have read in, in scores of books that such a transference is impossible. But the statement has had no effect upon my mind. I do not care whether it is impossible or not with learned unbelievers. It is evidently possible with God, for he has done it. But they say it is contrary to reason. I do not care for that either, for it may be contrary to the reason of those unbelievers. But it's not contrary to mine. And if I am to be guided by reason, I prefer to follow my own. <laughs> the atonement is a miracle. And miracles are rather to be accepted by faith than measured by calculation. A fact is the best of arguments. It is a fact that the Lord hath laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. God's revelation proves the fact. And our faith defies human questioning. God saith that I will believe it, and believing it, I find life and comfort in it. Shall I not preach it? Assuredly I will, ere since by faith I saw the stream his flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme, and shall be 
till I die. Amen. Thank you, Charles Spurgeon. That's one half of the message. Later on, in a few days, we'll we'll do uh, part two of that. We have other men coming up, and I hope that you will join us for those other men. Thomas Brooks, Charles Bridges, and William Gurnall coming up this week, along with the rest of Charles Spurgeon. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Look around the site while you're here. You've got 3,000 plus audios. Uh, some of the church's great preachers, uh, persecution stories from North Korea in English and in Korean, Bible studies on a number of subjects, and a blog. If you want more fellowship, just consider buying one of my books at Amazon.com or contact me at bob.j.faulkner.72 at gmail.com. And I'll share details of our Saturday evening and Tuesday noon meeting on Zoom. And uh, I really do hope that you will consider that. I'd love to meet you, talk with you, and have you join. It's a little group, but a wonderful group. You'll, you'll see what I mean when you join. Thank you so much. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun, and this audio is being released on January 2, 2023. Lord willing, we'll talk again real soon. Bye-bye.